Okay, so we're doing this series called What Kind of Church? And the answer to that question today is this. We want to be a church that is amazed by grace. Okay, amazed by grace. That's what we're talking about today. And there's an invitation for you and me to be amazed by the grace of God afresh today. There's a verse in Psalm 66 where the person who wrote that psalm invites people as he contemplates all of the amazing works that God has done in delivering the people of God, Israel, out of Egypt and into the promised land through the Red Sea, he says, come and see the works of the Lord. He says, come and see. There's an invitation to a generation that perhaps didn't witness it for themselves. He says, come and see it. God is powerful. Then if you fast forward to John's Gospel, chapter 1, you find uh, a disciple by the name of Philip. He's one of the first disciples He's an early adopter, and uh, Jesus just says to him one day, follow me, and he's like, all right, and he just follows Jesus. He then goes to his friend, Nathaniel, and he says, hey, Nathaniel, I found Jesus, the one whom all the law and the prophets testify about, and he's from Nazareth, and Nathaniel, he's not such an easy win. He says, that sounds a bit rubbish. Nothing good comes from Nazareth, but Philip says to him, Come and see. There was an invitation to come and see the person of Jesus. And in the Old Testament, you've got this idea, come and see the works of the Lord. In the New Testament, you've got this idea of come and see the person of Jesus, God in the flesh. Today, when we talk about the grace of God, what I want us to understand is this. It's a combination of these two things. It's the powerful works of God displayed in the person of Jesus Christ for the benefit of you and I. And if you were to look in uh, Acts chapter 11, if you're doing the, the uh, I can say the Christmas Bible reading plan, the, the church Bible reading plan this week, uh, you'd have been reading Acts chapter 11, where a new church starts in Antioch. And it kind of happens kind of spontaneously. So the leaders in Jerusalem send a guy called Barnabas to come and check it out and and to check everything's legit. They're a bit worried about it in case it was some kind of weird kind of sect or cult that had happened. And so he goes in there, and this is the, the comment that Luke makes. If you put the scripture up, please. He says, When Barnabas arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. This is what he witnessed. He saw something that had been done by the grace of God. God at work. In fact, in, in the Greek, I think it doesn't even say what God, it just says he just saw the grace of God. He just looked at it and he said, this is the grace of God right here. See, here's something that I want you to know about the grace of God before we even begin to unpack it, is this, that it's something that changes lives. It's something that changes you and me. It's not just something that we believe. It's not just a doctrine that we have. It's something that if other people see it at work in your life, they say, whoa, this has changed you. This is different. This has made you a different, better person. And that's what, uh, that's what Barnabas saw in the church in Antioch. So today I want to talk about this word grace because that's the kind of church we are and we want to be. And we need to get to grips with this word. Uh, the word grace, it, it's a Greek word, charis, it means gift, free gift. It means, um, it means something undeserved, undeserved favour from God. And right away, that puts it in contrast to pretty much everything we know in life. 
If you want to pass your exams, what do you have to do? Revise, that's what I tell my kids. You have to work. If you want to pass that piano exam, what do you have to do? Practice. Work, work, work. If you want to make the cut for the sports team, football, basketball, dodgeball, whatever it is, what do you have to do? Practice, work, training. All of these things. Pretty much everything we know in life outside of the realm of family is about us working for results. And the danger is that we can impose that belief system into the Christian life, and we think, yeah, this is how we get on in church, this is how we get on in, in, in the Christian life, in my relationship with God, it's all about what I do. And the complete opposite is true, and nothing could be further from the truth. Because all of the good stuff in the Christian life comes for free, as a gift from God to you and me. So here's the thing about grace, it's undeserved. And as God invites us into an understanding of it today, I want us to understand that the grace of God, even if we've been knowing this stuff for 50 years, is way bigger than we think it is even now. The, uh, I thought, how, how are we going to approach this this morning? Because to be honest, if you go through the New Testament, you'll find grace pretty much written on every page of the New Testament. I thought, we can't go through every page, because, well, I suppose we could, but we, we'd be here a long time. But what I thought I'd do is I'd take us through a book of the Bible which really focuses a lot on this subject, the book of Romans. And we're going to go through chapters 1 to 8 very, very quickly. Is that okay? And uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, just so you know, he preached in London's Westminster Chapel. He preached 366 messages on the book of Romans. So there's a lot I'm not going to say today, okay? And... But what I am going to do is highlight key points to help us understand what the gospel is, what the grace of God is, so that you and I can grasp it more fully and so that we can live in the good of it. Um, So let's start in chapter 1. And he brings us in. Romans chapter 1, it's a dark chapter. It's a chapter of contrasts. Because actually it says two things. It introduces us to this idea of the righteousness of God. And... uh, Here we have it. Righteousness of God. And he introduces this idea that God is holy. God is perfect. God is righteous. There's nobody like him. God is good. God is pure. And that's good. You need to know that because nobody would ever want to follow or worship a God if he was some kind of tyrant or despot or evil person. Here he is. He's good. He's righteous. In this chapter, he contrasts the human race to that God. And he says this, the the wrath of God is being revealed uh, from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of people. Here's his assessment of the human race. Godless and wicked. In contrast to the righteousness of God. Now, obviously, everybody's different, aren't they? Now, If we were to put ourselves on a scale, we'd say, well, if if God's up here, if he's totally righteous, and let's have somebody pretty evil down here, let's have Mao Zedong or um, Adolf Hitler or somebody like that. Somebody who we would all agree in the room, they were evil. And then, but further up the scale, you'd say, well, there's there's some pretty good people around. There's Mother Teresa, she did some good stuff. And there's, you know, that 
that the two people who invented social bite in Edinburgh, that, that's a remarkable thing. You know, maybe they're here somewhere as well. It, and there's people that would say they've done amazing things, amazing charities, people who founded things. You think, that is good. We would put ourselves somewhere on this scale. Now, you might be here, and I might be here. Your mum is probably up here. <laughs> but here's the point. Paul isn't making the point about who's better than who. He's making the point that all of us fall way short of God's righteous standard. And that results in us being in this situation where we're under his judgment, the, the wrath of God being revealed, that there's a judgment that, that we're under, that we, also, we live in and already and will do in eternity. Now, chapter 2 makes this point. because people, Some people say, well, yeah, but I'm not as bad as that person. Doesn't that help? And he says, no, not really. In fact, he says, you who pass judgment on somebody else, you do the same things. He says, just because you know the difference between right and wrong doesn't make you a better person, it just makes you a hypocrite. And his conclusion in chapter 3 is that there's nobody righteous, no one who understands, there's nobody who seeks God. There's nobody at this end of the scale who can say, you know what, I've got this relationship with God sorted. Everybody in the world falls short of this standard. And then in the bleakness of chapter 3, we read this amazing verse which is where the lights begin to come on. He says, Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness is given, say given, through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Say believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. What he's saying is this. If somebody wants to relate to God on this level, there's no other way to achieve it other than by a gift. But there is a gift that is available to any human being, even if they're right down here, that is freely received and freely given by God not to people who work hard for it, but to people who receive it as a gift. Now, chapter 4, he then uses an illustration they've been very familiar with, the illustration of Abraham in the Old Testament. And here's the question, Abraham, good guy or bad guy? I tricked you there, didn't I? <laughs> he wasn't a good guy or a bad guy. That's irrelevant to Romans chapter 4. He was a faith guy. He was a guy who believed God. He did stuff right and he did stuff wrong. But the thing he did was he trusted God when God gave him a promise to believe. And it gets personal for us. In, uh, it, it says about Abraham, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He achieved this by believing God. Now it gets personal for us in verse 23. It says, the words it was credited to him were not for him alone but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him and who raise Jesus our Lord from the dead. Our righteousness comes from believing, just as Abraham believed the promise of God. Chapter 5, this is where we start to use some other words. Therefore, since we have been justified 
through faith. To be justified simply means to be made right. He's saying the same thing again. This is how you get made right with God. If you want to be righteous, if you want a right relationship with God, then God needs to do it for you. And he says, you've been justified. The word justified, it means just as if I'd never sinned. It means just as if I'd always obeyed. It's as if all of the stuff that keeps us away from God has been totally taken out of the equation. And he says, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Peace. No striving. Not effort. Not at war with God, feeling like, well, he's always out to get me because I'm always disobeying and falling short. We have peace. We have access to God by faith into the grace in which we stand and we boast in hope. And he saves us from the judgment, the right judgment of God. And chapter five, he, he takes us into this, uh, this kind of fun illustration. You know how world history is usually told from a European point of view? You ever come across that, historians? Would you agree with that? You've told me that, so I think you do agree with that. Right, so, um, Paul Tate dials it back and he says, let's not look at history from one person's point of view. He says, here's the whole of history. There's two important people that you need to know about. The first man, Adam, and the second man, Jesus. He said, all the other people in between, we're just going to skip over those for now. And he contrasts them in these ways. He says, well, and he talks about Adam. He says, just as one trespass, you remember how Adam and Eve, they sinned in the garden, resulted in condemnation for all people, brought judgment on all mankind. He said, so also one righteous act by Jesus resulted in justification and life for all the people who would believe in him. For just as through the disobedience of Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Here's what he's saying. If if Adam's sin infected the whole human race with sinfulness, so Jesus' righteousness and his work through his death and resurrection is enough to infect you and I with righteousness forever if we believe in him. And it's interesting that we, we, we love to think these days that we're so self-determined and so self-defined and actually we, we make our own way and we make our own choices, but there are so many things in life where our life is governed by somebody else. You know, I, I get one vote in politics. The other 20 million people in Great Britain really get to make the decision based on their majority. You know, when you get on a plane, you don't have a lot of control over where that goes. Uh, I don't know if it's, is Storm Dennis still a thing? Are we still in that or is that over now? I think we're about through it. Last week, I don't know if you saw the news, but they were having a bit of trouble landing planes at Heathrow. And uh, there was one plane tried to land at Heathrow and the pilot just couldn't land it because of all the strong crosswinds. He, ended up, he couldn't land it on any nearby airport. They ended up flying to the south of France to land in Lyon and they just disembarked all the passengers. They didn't explain to anybody. They said, yeah, you just have to make your own way home. And people were like, aha, we've got in the wrong place. There's another person, another pilot, he landed the largest passenger airplane in the world, the Airbus A380 at Heathrow Airport. Across the runway, diagonally to the runway, he managed to, to ride it into the wind, lower it gradually, hover it down, spin it round on the tarmac, and slow it down. It's, it's a remarkable and risky maneuver, apparently. But obviously, this guy knew what he was doing, and he said, we can do it. Now, 
One aeroplane lands in the wrong place. One aeroplane, the pilot, buffets all of the headwinds and all of the opposition to land it in the right place. Now, if I was on that plane that day, I'd have told that story as if I was the pilot. <laughs> I'd have said, and this is what we did, and we maneuvered, and we turned around, and we landed. But here's the thing, it was all about the pilot. When Paul says, are you in Adam or are you in Christ? What he's saying is this, that Adam will never take you to the place you need to go. He'll only take you to condemnation and distance from God. If you put your trust in Jesus, his work on your behalf is enough to secure you through the headwinds of God's judgment and to land you safely in relationship with God forever. Chapter 6. You still with me? Okay. We're, getting, we're doing well in Romans, aren't we? I mean, I don't know how, I don't know how Martin Lloyd-Jones took so long about it, to be honest. I, I feel like we've got this covered. No, no, joking. Right. Okay. Sorry, 5 verse 20, one, one final thing. He says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. He's making a really important point that there is no amount of sin in the world committed by a human being that can't be overshadowed by the mountain of God's grace. Today, you might feel like you're a million miles away from God and you've done too much wrong, but the, the answer is this, the grace of God is more than enough to cover all of our sins. Chapter 6, here's the implication of what he's saying, that if God's grace, if what Jesus has done is enough to cover all of our past, present and future sin, if that's how powerful he is, that all of my future already is secured, regardless of my behaviour and what I do, which is the gospel, then the natural question is, could I just sin a bit more then? And could I just sin my way into heaven? Because if Jesus has done it all, then surely that seems to be the logical outworking. Now, when Paul answers that question, he doesn't say, no, you've got it wrong. He says this, Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? He says, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? If, there's a paraphrase of the, the New Testament by J.B. Phillips. And he says, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? And he says, what a ghastly thought. <laughs> and here's what's being said. It's not that you can't sin and be forgiven by God. It's this that... Such is the transformative work of the grace of God in your life that sin just feels wrong these days. That we've been crucified with Christ. The old us has been done away with. When a Christian sins, it feels like less fun than it used to. Because actually we've been made alive with Christ. And there's a new power at work in us. Jesus deals with the penalty, the power, and the pollution of sin in our lives. And that's the grace of God that does that. And he covers that in chapter 7 as well. Chapter 8. So not only does he cover the penalty, power, and pollution of sin, he also brings us into the presence of God. So chapter 8 is probably the most remarkable chapter in the whole Bible that you could read. And he says, what should we say then in response to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? This is the good news of the gospel. All opposition is dealt with. He who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all, will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And then here's the thing about real life. Real life isn't a theology textbook. Real life isn't a, simply a Bible reading and a happy thought for the day. Real life is full of grueling, 
hardship and difficulty and tragedy and disappointment. And there are some people, and, and, and as a Christian you can find yourself thinking this way sometimes, that you can find yourself thinking, well, you know, if, if God's so for me, and if he's dealt with all opposition, then, then surely I, I thought he might have provided for me in this situation. You know, surely he'd have intervened, and surely that wouldn't have happened, and surely this disappointment wouldn't have happened, surely that person would have been healed. And you can find yourself beginning to doubt the grace and the goodness of God because a voice in your ear whispers that God is not on your side. And he lists some examples. In verse 35, he says, What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, the stuff of life that we face, or famine, natural disasters? People often say, Where's God? Paul's answering that question. Or nakedness. Adam and Eve were naked in the garden. It was at their most vulnerable. You know, when, when, we're, um, when we're... The, the reason most of us fear vulnerability and fear being honest with other people about the things we really think and really feel is this, that we think that it will put them off us. <laughs> Isn't that right? If, if, if you knew some of my thoughts, you'd reject me, and you'd say, well, I, I don't want to know him. Here's the remarkable thing about this love, that the God who already knows all of your thoughts and everything about you isn't put off by you. He's not ashamed of you. He's not rejecting you, but here's what it says. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing. The experience of God's love for you is for you now, no matter what hardship you're going through. Let me ask you, Romans 1, 2, if this is news to you, that the gift of God comes to you for free, if you thought Christianity was about rule keeping and trying to earn your way, then the good news is today, you can believe and leave here. You think it's about this, but you can leave with this gift if you believe in him today. We run a course called POD. It's a little one-on-one -on -one Bible study. We'd love to take you through that chat to me or Guy or uh, Andy afterwards, we can introduce you to, uh, to somebody who can help you just do that very simple thing that will help you cross that line of faith if you haven't done that already. But for some of us here, you can think, well, Dan, you've said nothing new here today. I know the gospel. I know that I'm righteous because of Jesus. I know it's not about me. So why are we talking about it? And the answer to that question is because we forget it all of the time. In fact, there's a whole book of the New Testament, the book of Galatians, where Paul wrote to a whole group of churches because they'd all forgotten it. And they started with it and they forgot it. There's a default setting in the human heart, which is legalism. It's an anti-grace feeling, which is this, that, yeah, I'm saved by grace, but what God really wants me to do is work, work, work. And we need to come back to the grace of God again and again and again.
we move from grace to easily. Uh, this guy's a guy called Charles Blondin. He was a famous acrobat in 1824, born in 1824. And uh, that's him walking across the Niagara Falls on a tightrope, which is something he did many, many times in life. He walked 10,000 miles on a tightrope during his lifetime. He did it up to the age of 72, and he's still walking on tightropes. Anyway, he... Um, he, he did remarkable things. He got gathered crowds of thousands to watch him. And sometimes he'd walk across this tightrope unaided without a pole. Sometimes he'd walk across blindfolded. Sometimes he'd walk across, set up a stove halfway along, cook himself an omelette, eat it, and then carry on walking. Sometimes he'd carry people on his shoulders. Sometimes he'd drink a glass of wine. Basically, this guy would never fall off this tightrope. There was one time when he took a wheelbarrow And he said, do you think I could walk this wheelbarrow across this tightrope? And the crowd cheered, and they said, yes, yes, of course you can. And he did it, and they applauded and cheered. And then he said, do you think I could carry somebody in this wheelbarrow across this tightrope? And they all cheered, and they said, yes, yes. And he pointed to a young man in the crowd, and he said, how about you, sir? And this guy just went ghostly white and disappeared into the crowd. (laughs) And he said, anybody here, anybody We'll get in this wheelbarrow, please. Nobody in the crowd except one person who put their hand up. This little old lady, and she she got in the wheelbarrow, and he pushed her across, and she got out the other side, and everybody cheered. That lady was his mum. You can always rely on your mum, can't you? But here's the thing. She knew she could trust him. And to put your trust in Jesus is to get into his wheelbarrow. It's not not to rest on any other standing. It's not to rest on any amount of human effort. Jesus plus nothing equals righteousness. Jesus plus nothing. There was a group in the New Testament, in Galatians, they said, no, no, Jesus plus circumcision equals righteousness. Paul said, no, no, no. You might as well throw the whole thing away because that is just like every other religion of the world. He says, Jesus plus nothing equals righteousness. Today, God wants us to put all of our trust in him again. To remember the old, old story of Jesus and his love. A much older Paul, after he wrote the book of Romans, he wrote to Timothy And he'd been buffeted by a lot of trouble in his life. And he said, Timothy, I'm suffering. But he said, this is no cause of shame for me because I know who I have believed. And here's what it looks like to live a life understanding the grace of God and living the grace of God. You come to the end of that life and you say, you know what? There's been some ups and downs, some highs and lows. There's been some remarkable challenges along the way, but... I'm trusting Jesus all the way. Put your trust in Jesus today. Let let yourself get in to his wheelbarrow. Let me wrap up just by giving you a few practical applications because sometimes it's hard to know, isn't it? You think, well, I think I trust Jesus. I think I do. I think I trust him totally for my salvation. But... I think sometimes there are telltale signs in our life that show whether we're beginning to move off that clear foundation again and move out of that wheelbarrow, which is a dangerous place to be. Foundations and wheelbarrows. I'm getting all mixed up here, aren't I? Anyway, so let me just give you 
some questions to ask yourself, and you can think about these in the week if you like. You can think about them in your small group if you like. So seven questions for you. Do I talk about Jesus or myself more in terms of my relationship with God? We sang that song earlier, which is based on a Bible verse, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. People who are secure in the grace of God don't talk about themselves all the time. They talk about how amazing Jesus is despite who they are. Here's the second question. How do I see God? Do I see him as a slave master or as a father? In uh, Galatians 4, it says, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. You're no longer a slave, but God's child. As a Christian, you can sometimes wrongly see that all God wants of you is your time, your effort, your money to do, do, do. Every time there's a volunteering opportunity, you feel that sense of guilt that surely this is the right thing to do and you must do it. Then if you've noticed about children, they don't feel that obligation because they know the relationship is secure. Do you see God as a slave master or as a father? Thirdly, do you see the Holy Spirit as a gift or as a reward? In Galatians 3, he says, Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? You know, the Holy Spirit and his gifts aren't a reward for maturity. They're a present from your Father in heaven who loves you. If you find yourself looking at other Christians and think, how did, how did they get that gift? Why didn't God give me that? Perhaps you've moved off an understanding of grace that God loves to give his gifts freely to whoever he wants. Fourthly, do I have a growing or a diminishing heart for God's family? God is building his family of, of all kinds of people. Galatians 3 says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and you belong to Christ. Here's what happens. If you enjoy the grace of God, when you come into the community of God's people, you think, oh great, new people I've not seen before. Let's invite them into my life because we're one family here. It's like meeting brothers and sisters I've never met before. When people come back, like Maureen and Daniel and no doubt others here today, it's great thing. They're back, brothers and sisters. It's exciting. You know, when we start moving off the grace of God, it all becomes about our little clique and our little huddle of friends. And, oh, yeah, there's no space in this group for other people because it's me and my little clique. Fifthly, is my vision growing or do I get overexcited about obscure Christian teachings and single issues? Uh, Galatians 4, Paul warned the Galatians, he says, you're turning back to weak, miserable forces which is a load of just legalistic law-keeping that was enslaving them. And he, he, he uh, tells them off for it. Sixthly, are my joy levels sustained or reduced? Galatians 4, Paul asks the Galatians, he says, what's happened to all your joy? When you get grace, you get joy. When you move off grace, you just feel, uh, you feel joy is diminished and drained away. Life becomes humdrum. You lose that sense of privilege. Beware. We all, we all find life grumpy sometimes, don't we? Don't we? 
I do, you do. We get tired. Of course we do. There are things that we find genuinely hard and people we find really hard. But, you know, we mustn't, mustn't let those things steal our joy. There are sometimes I need to get before God and say, God, would you just restore joy to me? Help, help me to write. You rescued this sinner from hell. Therefore, I can put up with any situation or any person or any task that I'm needed to do. Seventhly and finally, am I growing in Christ-likeness or peer-likeness? Uh, Galatians 5, Paul said, you were running the race. Who's cut in on you? and Stopped you getting the prize. You know, here's the fast route to Christian maturity. Be like Jesus. Here's the slow route. Here's the route that takes you to legalistic obedience. It's this, that when you come into a community of people and you think, oh, I'll adjust these behaviours so I fit in here. The object is no longer, what would Jesus have me do? The, the, answer, the, the question is, well, what's going to cause me the least trouble if I conform my behaviour to what most people in this room are doing? Make sure that by God's grace you're pursuing Christ, not just looking like what other people are doing. So I don't know if any of those things rest for you. Maybe you'd want to just take a moment and you think, well, yeah, I wonder if some of those things are reflective of the fact that maybe I'm beginning to climb out of the wheelbarrow. Please don't. Because actually there's only one way to righteousness, and it's through believing and receiving the gift of God in Christ. Lord, we just want to thank you for your gift. Lord, nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling. Lord, thank you, it's not about us, and it never has been. It's never about what I've been able to do for you. It's all about what you've done on my behalf. Help us to rest in you. I want to pray for any who are striving or struggling in their own strength today. I pray, Lord, that we would find our rest in you.